Let me take your syllabus and update you on where you are, just in case you didn't know. You have read, memorized Maury's book uh, on death. You have been through individual eschatology, talking about physical death and its meaning, immortality, intermediate state, and some of the wrong ideas of annihilationism, conditionalism, those things that Maury dealt with particularly in his book. We leave that now, and we turn to uh, general eschatology. And at this point, you pick up that which I had you read on the first day, pages 9 to 26 of Ellison. So that should be refreshed in your mind for today under the title, God's Plan of the Ages. Let me give you a, a repeat of some bibliographical data. You remember on your syllabus sheet, I noted for you to the disappointment of many that there would not be any paper to read for this class or paper, I should say, to write. <laughs> there will be paper to read, lots of it. Uh, but no paper to write. Uh, in this particular class, I'm not even requiring memorization of Scripture, though I hope that that will go on as well. But I have required a large amount of reading, and I want you to saturate yourself in reading. And that means read everything I hand out. Uh, the, the articles that I hand out from time to time in this particular class are written and handed out to be read and to be examined on. So uh, the page numbers that I give you in the various books, the additional handouts, all of those things you will be responsible for as supplementary materials to complete the things that need, I think, completing in the book. So let me just refresh your mind again on that, that there's one singular basic responsibility in this class by way of outside work that isn't papers, that isn't memorization, but it's reading. Read, 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 read. Okay? So uh, there is a lot of that, but I'm really at this point not apologizing for it because of all the other things that I've cut out. So you will be expected to know the things that we hand out in the reading. Uh, now, with regard to today, uh, there are some things that you have read for today and other things that I would recommend to you uh, as uh, supplementary but not required. Uh, for example, the major area that we hit today is meaning in history as the first item under God's plan of the ages. You will find many books that are uh, entitled God's Plan of the Ages. One comes to my mind right now by Lewis Talbot by that title. There are a number of other books by that title. Most of those are really expressing a philosophy of history. They are seeking to give meaning to history from a biblical standpoint. Now, what I want to do a little bit of today is back up a little bit from that to uh, recognize what does the unbeliever do with history. 
at least to note that. We will not study it in depth, but you at least ought to be aware of it. And probably one of the classic volumes that should be uh, in your awareness, at least, if not in your library, is Carl Loweth. I mentioned it to you earlier, L-O-W-I-T-H, Carl Loweth, spelt with a K, Meaning in History. And in that book, he goes through the uh, various uh, pieces that must be included if history is to have meaning. And you'll also remember that one of your assignments was to read the uh, last section of, uh, of McLean called A Premillennial Philosophy of History, page 527. And in that short article, he gives you a few pages, a couple of pages of the, uh, the non-Christian approach to history. Uh, so that will refresh your mind a little bit. Uh, then, one of the books that I have recommended, again, but not required, that has an excellent section on uh, meaning in history, I think he calls it the meaning of history, is, um, well, I'm losing everything here, The Bible and the Future by uh, Anthony Hokema. Uh, this is the book that I suggested if you were going to have uh, one good, solid book in your library from the amillennial standpoint, this would be the book I would have. I think it is the best, uh, most exegetically sound approach to Scripture uh, from that viewpoint that I know of. And uh, several sections of the book, I think, uh, just are better than anything I've seen in any other work. And his uh, short section on the meaning of history beginning with page 23, going through about page 40, I believe. Um, 23 to 40 is an excellent section. And again, it gives you a little bit on the uh, pagan approach to history, but mostly on that which is re required in a biblical approach to history. And then I believe I mentioned one other or two other books outside again, not required. Eric Sauer's book, Eternity to Eternity. That would fit in right here. If you want to supplement that, then his other two volumes on the dawn of world redemption and the triumph of the crucified complete that trilogy. The latest one and the overall one is Eternity to Eternity. The two previous ones that kind of divide that book in two are the dawn of world redemption, the triumph of the crucified. Uh, I just say for your information that he comes basically from a dispensational viewpoint, but from a European dispensational viewpoint, which has a, a little different flavor to it. And I think it's refreshing to read that from different angles. Eric Sauer, a, a very, very good European theologian. Then one other book that I mentioned to you, again, not required in this case, is uh, by... Reynolds Showers, professor at Philadelphia College of the Bible. Uh, what on earth is God doing in history? And his attempt there is not so much to go back and show us the um, uh, biblical unfolding so much as to show the extra-biblical unfolding since the closing of the canon and to show how God 
has been working in providence, uh, how he has been working in history. So those several books, Eric Sauer, European, Reynolds Showers from this country, uh, Anthony Hokema, and uh, Carl Loeth, all recommended. Required, Ellison, McLean, and uh, the notes that you have here in the in the paper in in this in the uh, excuse me in Bob Cook's notes. Now <clears throat> that reminds me to look at the notes, page two forty nine, two fifty. They are very short on this section, hardly a page, and you could. Uh, you could, with profit, spend uh, a whole course right on this one uh, lecture that we're moving into today and not exhaust it at all. Uh, there is a, an elective course that I have sometimes done called uh, The Principles of Providence, uh, which is an attempt to show a biblical unfolding of history. Uh, and that does not even touch the pagan concept there. So. This is a, uh, is a huge area and a very, very important area. Uh, when, uh, when Hokema begins this section of his book, his first, first sentence is this. Few questions are as crucial in today's world as that of the meaning of history. Few questions are as crucial as the meaning of history. I recall sitting on the plane flying into Portland on a particular occasion when I had engaged the man next to me in conversation uh, and I had tried to come at it uh, in some way without just bombarding him with the gospel and so I started from a purpose and meaning in history and uh, when I did it met with a guffaw from him he said purpose meaning in history he said there is no meaning in history there is no meaning at all in this life, you know. Uh, we live and we die without purpose. And uh, that led to a very, very good engagement and conversation. But it was right to the point of this section. And there are many, many people who see no purpose at all. So, no purpose at all in history. So let me move to that. The meaning of history... Uh, going back to the Greek concept of cycles in history. Uh, this is not basically the atheistic concept because there were those who held to this viewpoint that were not atheistic, that believed in God. Uh, Plato had a concept of God. He would not have considered himself an atheist, but Plato would have been one who believed that history is basically a series of repeated cycles, endlessly repeated cycles, going nowhere, achieving nothing. Uh, there is no progress made from one to the next in the cycle. It simply repeats itself over and over and over again. Consequently, there is no goal within history in the pagan cyclical concept. There is no goal, there is no end, there's no telos, there's no purpose within history. 
you only have the endless repeated cycles. And if you could see a goal at all in the Grecian concept, it would simply be to be delivered from history, to be delivered from time, for there is no purpose, there is no goal, there is no accomplishment within time. Um, again, referring to Hokema, he quotes uh, from Marsh and from Oscar Kuhlmann. Let me just read a portion of the um, explanation uh, from Kuhlmann of the Greek concept. Because in Greek thought, time is not conceived as an upward sloping line with beginning and end, but rather as a circle. The fact that man is bound to time must here be experienced as an enslavement, as a curse. Time moves about in the eternal, circular course in which everything keeps recurring. That is why the philosophical thinking of the Greek world labors with the problem of time. But that is also why all Greek striving for redemption seeks as its goal to be freed from this eternal circular course and thus to be freed from time itself. For the Greeks, the idea that redemption is to take place through divine action in the course of events in time is impossible. Redemption in Hellenism can consist only in the fact that we are transferred from existence in this world an existence bound to the circular course of time into that beyond which is removed from time and is already and always available. In, uh, in McLean's work, he tells you that there are two attitudes among the non-biblicists, among the pagan, toward this earth. One is that it's nothing. The other is that it's everything. Uh, and uh, the ancient Greek concept saw it as nothing and something to be delivered from, something that I'm a slave of. Uh, just digress for a, a brief moment here. And remember Paul's statement again in Romans 12 too. Stop being conformed to this world system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? There is a world system around us then. There was in Jesus' day. There was in the Apostles' day. And uh, I need to remember that I am susceptible regularly to being influenced by the system around me that says there is no meaning in history. That I'm simply a slave of time and the ultimate goal is to be released from time. Now to, to just highlight the danger of that, if you read Calvin's theology, read the Institutes of the Christian Religion, you will find, I think, that even in Calvin uh, there was a bit of this uh, treatment of uh, our sojourn here as kind of an imprisonment. I think he picked this up from uh, Platonic thought, that we are, we are uh, somehow bound in this body, and to be released uh, is our goal. Now, that obviously is not the central thought of Calvin at all. But I think along the edges of his theology, you often pick up that idea that was uh, paramount in the Grecian concept. Uh, to be released 
uh, from the prison house that we are presently in and to find meaning basically outside of history. And if I may anticipate a little thought uh, for what we will get into later, I personally believe that that is one of the weaknesses of the standard amillennial theology. I tried to bring that out to you uh, in the statement by Berkauer, a covenant theologian, an amillennialist, who speaks of the weakness of their own system in finding purpose and meaning in history. The tendency is to find meaning outside of history, that there is not really a victory, there is not a consummation within history. I think from the standpoint of philosophy of history and meaning in history, that typical amillennialism falls very short at that point. Uh, the, the goal of history, then, in the secular concept, is to be released from history. Nothing within history that is meaningful. You'll see concepts like that in other world religions. Uh, think for a moment of Hinduism. Uh, the, the great goal is nirvana. Uh, somehow to meditate and meditate and to so dispossess my, my mind of any thoughts of this world that I reach this objective nothingness. Nirvana. Uh, what a difference from biblical meditation. Uh, biblical meditation is I focus on an object, revelation. Uh, transcendental meditation is to focus on nothing. It's to be released from everything and to focus on nothing, ultimately. There are a lot of spin-offs, both in uh, evangelical theology and in pagan uh, theology or philosophy, that uh, incorporate this view of the world that sees the world as really nothing. Now, there's the other side that I'm uh, not going to expand in any detail here, but also which sees uh, no meaning in history, but sees the world as everything. And that's the, uh, that's the atheistic, existentialistic, uh, or Marxist philosophy of materialism uh, that uh, eat, drink, and be merry. This is everything. This is it. There is no pie-in-the-sky idea. There's no utopia out there. Uh, don't tell me that kind of thing. All that there is is really right here, and there's really no meaning in it. Uh, therefore, whatever meaning you give to it is the only meaning it will ever have. So what you can make it do for you is what really counts. Uh, basically, the philosophy of the materialist uh, has no more meaning uh, than the ancient Greek. Uh, he simply, uh, rather than seeing meaning uh, outside of history, uh, tries to get for himself something out of history, even though the course of history has no meaning at all. In contrast to that, I believe that Scripture gives us a linear concept of history, 
that is not simply a straight horizontal line, but is, as Kuhlman said, a, a, a line sloping upward. Uh, a, there is progress being made. It is not cyclical. There is progress being made. Uh, so that is evidenced by a beginning and an ending, an ending with purpose, and it's sloping upward so that the process of time becomes meaningful. Uh, if there were not a sloping upward of the line, then it's difficult to explain why the long extent of time. For example, if all that is being accomplished in history is the salvation of the elect, then why didn't uh, God create man, uh, allow him to sin, provide salvation for the elect, and save those who believe, and do it all in a very short period of time? Why the long, arduous course of history? Why do you have thousands of years of history if the only thing God was doing was uh, saving some? Uh, that really fails to explain what is going on. Uh, there has to be more than soteriology involved. And uh, that being true, uh, be careful that your life is governed by a philosophy of history that goes beyond simply the salvation of the elect. For God is doing more than that. Uh, Earth's history has more than that involved. Along that line, then, I have suggested uh, five things here. This upward sloping line representing a linear concept from beginning to end with purpose, with a goal, has involved in it these several ideas. God is the Lord of history. Christ is the center of history, a non-recurring fact. God's purpose is fulfilled in history, and history is a revelation of God. Now, move back to God is the Lord of history. The sovereign God is Lord of history. And take your Bible for just a moment. Look at a few representative passages. Um, the Psalms are loaded with statements along this line. I want to read a psalm or two, and then I want to read Kushner's response to a psalm or two. In um, Psalm 103, 19, 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. So says the psalmist. Turn back to Psalm 10. Psalm 10 and verse 16. 
The Lord is king. He is sovereign. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Uh, Proverbs, the next book, Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Or you remember from theology proper, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. That's one of the verses I believe you memorized. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Not some things, all things. He works all things. Small things, yes. Big things, yes. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Without looking at it, just mark down Acts 17.26, which speaks specifically of the sovereign Lord's activity in determining the bounds of men and governing their activities. Just a few verses of the Scripture's view of God. God is sovereign. God is king. God has a kingdom. He rules over all. Now, listen to uh, Rabbi Kushner. I've introduced you to this book in uh, Soteriology. It's one of my favorites. Um... Here is, uh, in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, sometimes we try to make sense of life's trials by saying that people do in fact get what they deserve, but only over the course of time, etc. So, for example, the 92nd Psalm praises God for the wonderful, flawlessly righteous world he has given us, and hints that foolish people find fault with it because they are impatient and don't give God the time it takes for his justice to emerge. And then he quotes the psalm, Psalm 92, 6 to 8. How great are your deeds, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The ignorant man does not comprehend them, nor does the fool understand them. When the wicked spring up like grass, and workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree, and grow mighty like a cedar of Lebanon, to declare that the Lord is upright, my rock in whom there is no unrighteousness. Kushner's response to the 92nd Psalm. If I could meet the author of the 92nd Psalm, I would first congratulate him on having composed a masterpiece of devotional literature. I would acknowledge that he had said something perceptive and important about the world we live in, that being dishonest and scrupulous often gives uh, people a head start, but that justice catches up to them, etc., etc. He praises the psalmist. Then he says, but having said that, I would be obliged to point out that there's a lot of wishful thinking in his theology. Even if I were to grant that wicked people don't get their way with their wickedness, that they pay for it in one way or another, I cannot say amen to his claim that, quote, the righteous flourish like the palm tree. Skipping down a couple of paragraphs, I find I cannot share the optimist of the psalmist that the righteous in the long run will flourish like the palm tree and give testimony to God's uprightness. A little later on in his book, speaking about Job, uh, he says, uh, the author of the book of Job takes the position which neither Job nor his friends take. 
He believes in God's goodness and in Job's goodness and is prepared to give up his belief in Proposition A that God is all-powerful. Bad things do happen to good people in this world, but it is not God who wills it. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he cannot always arrange it. A little later on, even God has a hard time keeping chaos in check and limiting the damage that evil can do. A little later on, if we have grown up as Job and his friends did, believing in an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God, it would be hard for us, as it was hard for them, to change our way of thinking about him as it was hard for us when we were children to realize that our parents were not all-powerful, etc., etc. But if we can bring ourselves to acknowledge that there are some things God does not control, many good things become possible. If there are some things that God does not control, then there is nothing that he does control, ultimately. He either controls everything or he controls nothing, ultimately. Uh, so don't take the fool's philosophy that Kushner has here espoused, that God controls something. For if he doesn't control everything, he doesn't control anything. There is somebody else who does. There is somebody who is bigger than God who is in control in those situations where God does not control. Now, in contrast to that philosophy, listen to what the Scripture says about those things. Turn to Genesis chapter 50. It is extremely important that we understand this philosophy of history biblically if we're going to talk about eschatology. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus shall you say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. You meant evil to me. God meant it. What? What you did. God meant it for good to me. Now, when Joseph uh, had those evil acts perpetrated upon him, were those evil acts in essence good? No. No, the evil acts were evil. But God controls in the whole of the world. And God, being sovereign, is great enough to make even the wicked acts of men ultimately bring praise to him. And the way God summarizes that is that one day, hell itself will give praise to God. And unless you have a firm view of theology proper, you'll never be able to understand eschatology. Uh, you will never be able to handle that great prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Uh, we just went through a weekend, a beautiful celebration on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to another verse. Turn to the New Testament, Acts chapter 4. On Good Friday, many of us participated in services that 
were symbolical of the most wicked act that has ever been perpetrated in history. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet in Acts 4, 27 and 28, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So at one and the same time, the wicked act of crucifixion was the sovereign act of a righteous God. At one point, it's called the cross. At the other point, it's called a crucifixion. For God the Father, it was putting his son on the cross. For wicked men, it was a crucifixion of a righteous man. And in the central act of history, God was in control. Uh, I, I hope that when we go through that, those days again and again, we will not treat the it is finished words as though they were the despairing cry of a man who was exhausted. Uh, some of the pictorial portrayals, even this last weekend, would give one that kind of feeling that Jesus finally was just famished and he gave up and said, it's done, it's done, it's over. He said that with ultimate strength. He said, it is finished. It is accomplished. I have done what I came to do. No man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up. It was not a weak, emaciated Christ on the cross. It was a person of strength who to the very last was doing precisely what he came to do. Be careful how we communicate what was happening. That we do not read our own weakness into Christ's act so that his strength becomes weakness instead of strength. That God was in control of history. On the cross, he was in control of history. And there needs to be a strong, strong concept of the sovereignty of God. God is Lord of history. Let me skip down to this one here. God's purpose is fulfilled in history. One of the things that I appreciate about the article I handed out to you by Bear Cower several sessions ago now was his singling out of the importance of having an explanation of history which finds its goal and consummation within history. And I think it's particularly significant that Berkauer praises the Kiliaths, praises the Millennialists for having a meaningful explanation, uh, a meaningful consummation within history. Uh, I believe that is one of the greatest contributions of premillennial theology. They find a purpose for this earth. The victory is won in the same place where the war was started. Uh, God is victor on the earth. I will hand out to you later on an article or two 
from a book that I've mentioned to you before by Van Ruler on the church in the Old Testament, the Christian church in the Old Testament. And one of the contributions that I think that book makes so beautifully is to see that you cannot spiritualize all of the Old Testament earthly promises into fulfillment in the church. He says you cannot do that. You can't do it. Uh, there are some things of which the Old Testament speaks more fully by far than the New Testament. And one of those things is God's purpose for E-A-R-T-H, earth, earth, earth. And he will consummate his program within history. History, if it is to be meaningful, must have purpose within time. You cannot find the purpose for history outside of history. That is no longer history. You've got to find it within history. And so God's purpose is fulfilled in history. I would underline the preposition in. At least I'm trying to emphasize that. And notice that the purpose is singular. Now, please do not let that throw you. When I say that the purpose is singular... I am not saying that it is uniform. There's a difference between the two. I believe that God's purpose has many dimensions, and a better word would be multiformity than uniformity for the purpose. Take the article that I handed out to you by Gerhardus Voss. This is taken from his book, Biblical Theology. The first, the first section, the, the first chapter of that book. And I've underlined uh, several areas, and maybe some of you have already had this brought to your attention in a previous class. If so, uh, then forgive the repetition. On page 14, he's talking about the historic progressiveness of the revelation process. Notice, it has not completed itself in one exhaustive act, but unfolded itself in a long series of successive acts. I'll come back to that in a moment. Let me just read through several of these statements. Page 15, the underlined part. The organic nature of the historic process observable in Revelation. Every increase is progressive, but not every progressive increase bears an organic character. The organic nature of the progression of Revelation explains several things. It is sometimes contended that the assumption of progress in Revelation excludes its absolute perfection in all stages. And he goes on then to talk about the perfection of the Revelation. Now turn to page to 16. It does not proceed with uniform motion, but rather is epical in its onward stride. In a later lecture, we will get into that. It is epical in its onward stride we can observe that where great epoch-making redemptive acts accumulate, there the movement of revelation is correspondingly accelerated and its volume increased. Still further, from the organic character of revelation, we can explain its increasing multiformity, the latter being everywhere a symptom of the development of organic life. There is more of this multiformity observable in the New Testament than in the Old, more in the period of the prophets than in the time of Moses. He goes on to explain that epical, multiform movement in the history of God's purpose. So though God's purpose is singular, 
i.e., to bring glory to himself. How he does that is multiple. There is a multiformity in the increasing, in increasing progressiveness of his revelation. Uh, side note. We, we talk about Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, and then we talk about a restoration of Israel again, Romans chapter 11. Uh, we see these two peoples of God. Uh, I, I believe that we need to be careful of using the term two peoples of God. Ultimately, there is a redeemed people of God. But that redeemed people of God does not have to be all one group. In other words, you don't have to spiritualize Scripture to make Israel the church in order to have a singular redeemed people of God. You have a redeemed people of God, Israel. You have a redeemed people of God, the church. Uh, these are both redeemed, but they are not the same. Uh, there is a multiformity within the singular purpose of God as you see its ongoing progressiveness. Uh, God's purpose is singular. Its unfolding is multiple. It is multiform rather than uniform, and it has uh, a fulfillment, a goal within history. I probably should have put uh, a separate statement to not only say God's purpose is fulfilled in history, but I should have said that there is a goal within history. I, I was hoping that that thought would be contained in the statement, God's purpose is fulfilled in history. Uh, he is working toward a goal, which goal is accomplished within history. Again, Christ is the center of history. In contrast to the, uh, the Grecian concept of constantly recurring cycles, endlessly repeating cycles, in a biblical philosophy of history, we have an entirely different thing. We have in Jesus Christ, the unique person of history, a non-recurring event. Uh, you have uh, the uh, death of Christ and his resurrection, which looks forward to his coming again. I don't personally see the cross as the center of history. I see that as that which provides for the center of history, the crown. To me, the center of history is the crown, not the cross. You couldn't have the crown, however, without the cross. Uh, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, uh, are those things which are essential to ultimately have Christ crowned as Lord of history. But uh, Christ is God's answer to uh, man's problem. Let me put that in a, uh, in a quick overview from a biblical philosophy of history to expand that idea. Uh, we've talked about God's eternal kingdom program. Or that would be synonymous with God's sovereignty. Uh, within his kingdom program, in the past, there was among his creatures a rebellion in the angelic world. We'll not refer to that and try to elaborate it now, 
which brings into existence within God's sovereignty the beginning of a kingdom of darkness, which is the counterpart to the kingdom of light. Uh, in the program, in this war between the two, you move from creation to consummation. You move from a beginning to an ending within history. You start with the commission to the first Adam, which is not fulfilled by him because of his response to the kingdom of darkness. However, you see the second Adam fulfilling, spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15, that which the first Adam failed to do. God gave man a choice. Man chose the kingdom of darkness. Sin entered the human race. Two problems were immediately created for God. The only way I can put that, uh, I'm sure that from God's perspective, it was not a problem. For me, it is a problem as I look at what was happening in God's kingdom. Two problems for God. One, for a sovereign God to reclaim his kingdom. Secondly, for a sovereign God to redeem the people of his kingdom. Take the word kingdom and trace it through the scripture. It not only has a realm and a ruler, but it has people. So he needed to reclaim as ruler the realm and the people. Those two streams of thought will move all the way through the biblical portrayal of God's explanation of history. Those two problems for God are fulfilled through a person, Jesus Christ. The first Adam fails. Genesis chapter 3 speaks of that, 3.15. The second Adam finishes the work which the first Adam failed to do. God's philosophy of history settles forever the question, who is God? Is there another who is in control? Secondly, it destroys Satan and all possibility of sin. Thirdly, he redeems man and gains his allegiance by the exercise of his love and grace. Uh, as we move through the course, uh, we will be explaining the pieces of that. Uh, this would be the overview of it. To put that in one other focal point, going back to Jesus Christ as the center of history. Uh, interestingly enough, there is a point at which all dates either move backward or forward. It's either uh, after the death of Christ or before Christ. All history focuses on him who is the center and apex of history, a non-recurring event, not an endless cycle of redeemers, but a non-recurring event. The single most event in history in Jesus Christ in his triumph over Satan, over sin, over death, over everything that would rear its head in opposition to the sovereign God. So that ultimately, 
The simple, simple statement in the disciples' prayer is as good a statement of philosophy of history, biblically, as you can ever find. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I know of no statement in all of Scripture or outside of Scripture that more beautifully encompasses all of the pieces of a legitimate philosophy of history than a disciple's prayer. So when we pray that prayer, we are really praying from eternity to eternity. We are praying from heaven to earth. We are praying God's purpose. Uh, the remainder of the course should open up the various phases of a true philosophy of history.